This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM. When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong. Well, thank you very much, Roger, and good morning to you. Good morning, world, as we are ready to join you and to spend the next hour on WGN Radio talking about agriculture. It's been another interesting week in the agricultural community, and we'll talk about the latest survey on production that was issued yesterday by the the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They did lower the corn yield per acre number, and we'll get into that. We'll also review what happened a week ago today in Indianapolis, the election of the new National FFA officer team. We'll be talking to Tom Brand, executive director of the National Association of Farm Broadcasting, who uh, for over half a Well, let me see. No, not quite half a century, but about three decades has been covering the National FFA Convention. And uh, then I'm going to lead off with a story that proves to me again, people who really don't understand agriculture keep doing crazy things. Let me lead with this story this morning. Ben and Jerry, you're familiar with that company, famous for their ice cream Ben and Cherries in Vermont, they have now been sued by an environmental advocate who said the company deceived consumers by touting that the milk and cream it uses to make ice cream came exclusively from, quote, happy cows. But in a complaint filed this week, James Ehlers said Ben & Jerry's breached consumer trust by representing that the milk and cream were sourced from cows on Vermont dairies that participate in its Caring Dairy program. Ehlers said less than half the milk and cream actually came from, quote, happy cows, with the rest coming from factory-style mass-production dairy operations. He said the description enabled Ben and Jerry's and its parent Unilever to charge premium prices, unjustly enriching themselves and violating a Vermont consumer protection law. The uh, proposed class action filed this week in the federal court in Burlington, Vermont, seeks damages for ice cream purchases nationwide and in Vermont and to stop Ben and Jerry's from claiming its milk and cream came from, quote, happy cows on caring dairy farms. Ben and Jerry's spokeswoman, Laura Peterson, said the company does not discuss pending lawsuits, but was committed to building a resilient, regenerative dairy supply and considered its caring dairy program the most progressive in the industry. Ben and Jerry's, founded in 1978 in a renovated gas station, has long positioned itself as socially conscious. So 
there's another lawsuit. Let's go to court. Let's hire lawyers and go to court and talk about things that really I don't think the sewer really, oh, that's S-U-E-R, sewer, I don't think really understands what it takes to produce food and all of the other products that agriculture does. So I wanted to get that one out of the way. I, I may mention it again because will it never end? I just don't understand. We're at 10 minutes. No, make it 11 minutes after 5 o'clock. And uh, we're going to check in with longtime friend, farm broadcaster, and executive director now of the National Association of Farm Broadcasters, Tom Brand, will be joining us on the line when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Joining us on the line from his office in Kansas City, Tom Brand, who is executive director of the National Association of Farm Broadcasters, and uh, that takes him all over the country to visit with people like Max Armstrong and yours truly and a lot of other folks. But before we talk about the upcoming convention of the Farm Broadcasting Group, I want to go back to the FFA convention because, Tom, how many years have you been working with news people and students at that FFA convention? Well, you know, Maureen, it's kind of funny. Um, when I was in college, there was an opportunity to work in the newsroom at National FFA Convention when it was still in Kansas City. And uh, that uh, was the first of, of three years as a student intern, which turned into a career in farm broadcasting, which resulted into a career with the National Association of Farm Broadcasting um, here on staff. This last convention was my 30th convention working in the newsroom, and then because of where I grew up, and having the opportunity to attend convention. I went four years in high school, so this is my 34th out of the last 35 years of going to National FFA convention. What is the biggest change you've seen in the student attitude at that convention? I'm just curious to know. You know, I think whenever um, I first experienced FFA as a student and even as a, as a young broadcaster, there was a lot of, of attention and focus on the contests and the speakers and the the uh, the opportunities that were there in FFA, and and I think that is still as strong as it ever has been. But there's definitely a, a, a great focus that FFA does on career development, getting students ready for the next step, whether that's uh, going on to trade school or going on to to a community college or college itself or university or possibly even the military. I'm just exposing them to the number of, of career uh, events um, that, that are available um, out there for them. And then I think there's there's an even uh, better focus on leadership than what had been done in the past. Um, and, and while I think all those pieces have been in place for FFA during the entirety of, of its history, that, that seems to be to me to be the, the focus of, of what has, has really grown in strength in, in these 30-some years. Well, like you, I grew up in FFA in high school and then uh, found my way into broadcasting, and I've been doing that ever since. And, of course, when I think of FFA and leadership, I always think of Jerry Litton, who went on to Congress and uh, who made such a mark, really, in agricultural policy, didn't he? Yes, he did. You know, um, I was fortunate. I was in I was in Jerry Litton's congressional district. And even as a, as a young kid, who wasn't able to vote yet? I was I was aware of Jerry Litton, um, and and even after Jerry passed, uh, the the legacy that that he left behind 
Um, in fact, as an FFA student, um, one of the leadership opportunities I remember getting to, to be a part of was going to the, the Jerry Lynn Memorial and, and the Leadership Center in Smithville, Missouri, and, and learning more about him. Um, as, a, as a broadcaster, I always thought, man, wouldn't it be good to, uh, to have the, the opportunity to, to interview Jerry today? Um, I, I think he always brought a, a common sense perspective on, on so many things. Um, I don't know how he would fit into the into the political divide that we see today. My gut tells me that, that he'd be a, a darn good leader if, if he was still, uh, still around and, and involved. Yep, we really miss him. Now let's talk about the broadcasting industry because next week, well, I've already told my listeners, Tom, don't call your farm broadcaster next week because he probably will not be there. He'll be in Kansas City. But uh, what anniversary are we celebrating as broadcasters this year? So the association itself uh, had its 75th anniversary in May of this year. Um, we go back to 1944 when there was a, a group, really just a handful of fellows, that, that came together to uh, form a professional association that at the time they called the National Association of Radio Farm Directors. And that has morphed uh, through, uh, through a few different names through the years. So uh, here we are over 75 years later having our 76th convention. And we've been in Kansas City since, uh, since 1968, so this is our 51st year in, uh, in Kansas City itself. And, and uh, we've got a heck of a lineup for, uh, for convention uh, um, for our members as well as our guests this year. So let's talk about some of the highlights of the upcoming program. I see you were successful in convincing the Secretary of Agriculture to be part of the program again, even though he's in Mexico at the moment, but he'll be back in time. Absolutely. Yeah, we're really happy about that. Um, as you know, um, it, it's always a special treat whenever you get an audience with the Secretary of Agriculture. And, and uh, we've, we've had, uh, um, as an industry, a great relationship with whoever's been at USDA through a lot of years. And the uh, same can be said about Secretary Senate Purdue. So we're, we're delighted he's going to be a part of our convention this year, coming in on Friday. So really one of the last events that we have on our agenda this year. But still, uh, we'll, we'll have him with us. And then um, we're, we're fortunate as well that uh, um, we're going to have Richard Fordyce come in from, uh, from USDA. And, um, he's going to be on a, on a panel um, discussing uh, the, the farm economy and, and, and how does today different. Uh, from what it was in the 1980s. He's, of course, the administrator of Farm Service Agency. I saw Ted McKinney last week, and he said, I'm looking forward to seeing you farm broadcasters. And Ted, of course, working on, on trade and foreign affairs. Um, he'll be there. And we've got a um, former Secretary of Agriculture, John Block, who's going who's gonna to moderate a panel for us this year. So we've, we've got a nice lineup of, uh, of guests that are coming in for convention. And, of course, I have special interest in the Hall of Fame inductions. We induct uh, two, is it two every year that we tend to put into the Hall of Fame? Yeah, most every year we've done two. There's been a few exceptions where we've, we've done uh, three, but, but uh, traditionally two inductees into the Hall of Fame. And, and this year we've, we've got two class acts. Um, Tom Stever, um, who I know you've worked with in the past, uh, in, in different capacities, and, and uh, um, he uh, um, is, is currently at Brownfield Ag News in uh, Jefferson City, Missouri. He's uh, one of our inductees this year. Um, originally came from that South Dakota area, part of uh, part of the United States. Spent a lot of years on KSOO Radio and, and Sioux City Stockyards, and did a little stint at American Farm Bureau. And then the one that uh, that you and I uh, um, have common friendship with as well, and 
And I, I don't know if you can even call friendship oriented because it goes beyond that. That's Max Armstrong is our other inductee this year. And, and uh, I'm just really tickled uh, tickled that we've got two class acts that are they're going to be a part of, uh, of our Hall of Fame induction. Yeah, I was going to say I've had the pleasure of working with both of them, uh, Max, for 42 years at WGN. And then, of course, Tom Stever was here in Chicago when we were involved in producing a 24-hour agricultural TV network, uh, Mm -hmm. Channel Earth. And uh, so I had the pleasure to work with him as well. And both class acts, both gentlemen, and I'm excited about seeing them being inducted into the Hall of Fame for the National Association of Farm Broadcasters. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny. Last year, we did a video commemorating our 75th anniversary, and, and I was looking for two voices to uh, to put together part of the narration for that video. And the two that I happened to tap were Tom Stever and Max Armstrong. <laughs> so I thought, how neat is that, that uh, here we are a year later, that the, the people that I thought would be good voices for, uh, for NAFB are coming back and both going in the Hall of Fame at the same time. I would guess as a farm broadcaster, the biggest change I've seen is technology, and we talk about new technology every year, don't we? Yeah, we sure do. I, uh, um, I'm really looking forward to some of the discussions that we have. In fact, I talked about that uh, that farm economy um, now versus where we were in the 80s, and, and one of the panelists that's going to be a part of that discussion is a young farmer from kind of the central part of Missouri, uh, Garrett Rekoff, that uh, you know, I just I just happened to see this week, in fact, at the Night Future of America event, and and Garrett is a is an early adopter of technology, and and not just an adopter, but but he's one that's embraced technology, and and just put the pencil of the paper and said this works or this doesn't work, and uh, I I think it's good to get the perspective of of how technology is is playing such a big role in agriculture today. Well, I can remember when I was introduced at WGN Radio, they did that at an outdoor farm show in central Illinois. It took three engineers and a truckload of equipment to do that remote broadcast from a farm. And now I can hold a gadget in my hand and plug it into a line and a a computer and talk to you or anybody else anywhere in the world. And the, and the funny thing is, is it sounds like you, you've got to tell your audience where you are because the signal sounds so good now that they would think you're in studio unless you told them otherwise versus that technology that was in place not very many years ago, actually. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it's neat how technology has, has really affected our business, too. Well, it, it gives us the opportunity to hide from people because, as you say, <laughs> they can't tell where we are. So That's I want right. to go back to, right. uh, to FFA for just uh, a final comment. 50 years of ladies in the FFA this year. Was that a pretty big deal at the convention? The, you know, they had uh, they had several times that they, they paid tribute to that. And, uh, in fact, uh, your your perspective is one of those that they shared in the, in the video in one of the sessions just uh, commemorating the fact that we've had uh, 50 years of, of women involved in the FFA. And, and really, this is, this is the kickoff because that was approved 50 years ago, but women really became active. Um, the 50th anniversary for that will actually be next year. So I think this is just the beginning of that celebration and, and uh, neat to hear the stories about um, young women who were involved in FFA. And now we look at that organization with over half a million members today, and we know that over half of them are, are gals. And uh, it, it's neat to see how, uh, how it's worked out so well and, and 
and I'm really encouraged by the leadership that they provide too. It was interesting to note the new national officer team evenly split men and women that's three and three, and uh, yeah. yeah, that shows the progress that we've made. Absolutely, yeah, good to see. I did have a chance to meet those new FFA officers, and uh, you and I have talked about this before, Orion. It's always a good crop that, that, that comes onto the stage with a new national officer team, and I think, how can they get any better? And just my early impressions again this year were, okay, we've managed to move up yet another notch. Indeed we have, and we've watched that every year. Well, Tom, I know you got to get back to working on uh, the menus for the meals and the program and everything else at Kansas City. Dates next week are what? We'll, uh, we'll have our 76th convention November 13th through the 15th at the Western Crown Center in Kansas City, Missouri. And if there's any folks that, uh, that are in the area and would like to come over and say hello, we always, uh, we always welcome the chance to, to catch up with anybody. Indeed we do. Our thanks to Tom Brand, who is the Executive Director of the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. And we look forward to seeing Tom and a ton of other farm broadcasters next week in Kansas City. More to come here on the Saturday Morning Show. Coming up, we're going to talk about registration, now open for Commodity Classic, which will be held in San Antonio in 2020 and uh, the uh, registration and housing for america's largest farmer-led farmer-focused agricultural and educational experience will officially open the registration now opening at 10 a.m wednesday november 13 and the 2020 commodity classic will be held thursday february 27 through Saturday, February 29 in San Antonio next year to register, reserve hotel rooms, and sign up for email updates. Simply visit commodityclassic.com. That's commodityclassic.com. And early discounts on registration will end on January 9th of 2020. This is a gathering of the major crop producing organizations, American Soybean Association, National Corn Growers Association, National Association of Wheat Growers, the National Sorghum Producers, and the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. And I love the idea that they've all come together so that exhibitors at the trade show only have to do one setup of equipment or whatever products they want to display Commodity Classic next year in San Antonio, Texas. A lot more to talk about here on the Saturday Morning Show. Stay with us. And Roger, I have to add to your weather situation what's happening in the Valley of the Sun, Scottsdale, Arizona at the moment. Right now, the temperature is 62 degrees, and it'll probably hit about 85 to 88 today with uh, not a cloud in the desert, blue skies. Yeah, you, you can't make me feel that. Go ahead. Keep trying. Keep trying. <laughs> okay. Oh, and I have to ask you a question. Yeah. I. Mm -hmm. I love oysters as appetizers when I go out to dine at a restaurant, mm -hmm. and we don't talk about that crop very much. We talk about corn, wheat, soybeans, but uh, I want to take a moment to talk about oyster season because Texas oyster season has opened. 
That means licensed fishermen can legally harvest oysters on public reefs that have been approved by the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department uh, through April 30th. At the beginning of the 2019-20 season, a couple of sections of Galveston Bay are closed to oyster harvesting, and that means dredging for oysters in these areas is strictly forbidden and punishable by a penalty. And Lisa Halili, a partner in the family business, Prestige Oysters of San Leon, one of the state's largest oyster operations, said those closings are based on samples collected by parks and wildlife showing a low abundance of legal-sized oysters. A legal-sized oyster must measure at least three inches at the largest length of the shell, and harvesting oysters smaller than legal size is prohibited for good reason. So I keep learning about new agricultural products, but... I love oysters, and uh, Roger, if you do, you can now go to Texas and start harvesting. I'm even more amazed that I did not know there were oysters in Texas. You learn something new on the show every day. Well, I certainly learn something new every day, and uh, that keeps on. But the public beds of oyster production are monitored by the state for health, population, and size and immature oysters are left to grow to legal size to spawn and repopulate the reef. Interesting uh, story on how we produce that crop, and I guess it is an agricultural crop. So enjoy oysters, my friend. Will do, sir. Thank you very much. Okay, we're back with the Saturday morning show. And we're going to talk markets. Max will be joining us in a couple of minutes. But uh, right now, we say welcome to Samuelson Says. I'm Orion, and this week, discussing a new definition of pollution. Oh, the things I learn in this job about oysters and a lot of other things. But this week, when I think about pollution, I think about chemicals being dumped into a river. But yet, the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, who have not had a very good relationship with farmers over the decades since it was formed, and recently the EPA came up with this one. Soil being plowed in a field is a pollutant in this country. I learned that from Jennifer Oman, who is with the Pacific Legal Foundation. This is the ruling by the EPA, apparently one more attempt by the government to take control of yet another area and another issue. Let me quote the letter from Jennifer Oman, who said, quote, The EPA treats small family farmers or someone building a home the same as massive cases of pollution. The reality is they are not the same, and uh, treating them as such violates people's property rights while harming the mission of protecting the environment. Yet there are solutions to this problem. Federal courts can clarify that plowing a farm does not pollute that farm, And for its part, Congress could clarify that plowing dirt to make it grow plants better is not pollution. 
and the Trump administration could live up to its reputation for regulatory reform by not suing farmers for millions of dollars for plowing their farms. We all want clean water, she said, and the EPA should stick to actual water pollution. And a final quote from her release, the EPA treats small family farmers or someone building a home in the same class as massive cases of pollution. The reality is they're not the same, and treating them as such violates people's property rights while harming the mission of protecting the environment. Couldn't agree more. And once again, the EPA not doing uh, the right moves to help the environment and to help agricultural producers. These are my thoughts on Samuelson Says, a presentation of Nexstar Media Group. Coming up next at uh, 19 minutes before 6 o'clock, we'll talk markets. Max Armstrong joins us with his guest when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Dennis Smith is back with us from Archer Financial Services, always giving us a good assessment of the livestock and uh, meat situation. First of all, let me ask you about exports. We had some numbers recently on the level of exports. They weren't quite as exciting as I guess some of us had hoped to see. No, pork exports were up, and it was a good number, but year-to-date exports, I guess I should say, if you believe the number, were up only 5%. We've really been expecting something much more dramatic than that. The problem was we got off to such a slow start. Exports in the first half of the year were actually lower than a year ago due to all the situations and policies in place, but we are getting some real traction now, and uh, we're not even sure, Max, that uh, everything is being counted properly, and that's a sort of a political football, so to speak, but exports are on the rise in pork, and that I think that is a no-doubter. I heard a comment recently from an analyst who said he thought that the exports were not being reported in a timely manner, and then that as a result... It was hurting producers. I know that didn't come out of your shop. I heard it from somebody else, but I just wondered what you thought about that. I think it's an accurate statement. There is a lot of confusion right now, and it seems to be dealing with the split carcasses being processed and for shipment to China primarily by Smithville right now, but the other packers will soon be involved, JBS, Tyson, as they've uh, gone to a paline-free uh, processing unit. It seems like we're not getting accurate data on these split carcasses going to China, and it's just that simple. And, of course, the producer might immediately react and say, wait a minute, is this Packer hocus-pocus going on here that's that's uh, that's hurting the folks out on the farm? Yeah, it's frustrating, Max, because we've got a lot of uh, uh, independent producers that are still losing money right now and are not doing well. They're certainly not enjoying a, a big, uh, profitable tide uh, that we expected a year ago when this African swine fever story first broke. So the whole thing has been much slower to develop from a U.S. standpoint. Our competitors are doing very well. I was going to ask you about that. That's the thing, I guess, that has concerned me most about the trade war. When people ask me about it, I just worry about the long-term damage and the benefit that is being passed along to some of our competitors, such as Brazil. 
You know, they uh, and, and I was thinking in terms of soybeans, but that would be applicable also in meats, would it not? It definitely will apply both to the grains and the meats, and, and Brazil is capitalizing on, on a lot of port trade with China. The European Union is seeing sky-high port prices, and they are enjoying very good profits right now as they've captured about 60%, actually more than 60% of the new Chinese import uh, port business. So uh, our competitors are definitely at the advantage right now, as we have a 50% tariff. Uh, there is a Chinese uh, 50% tariff on U.S. pork. 50% remains in place then. I, I couldn't recall where it was, you know, all of the back and forth and all of the tweets and everything about the trade discussions. I did not recall how much of a tariff is there. That's uh, not insignificant, is it? It's very significant. The retaliatory tariff is 50%. There's a 12% tariff that's always been in place. So the total tariff is 72%. Uh, that we are at a disadvantage uh, to our competitors, uh, European pork, Canadian pork, and, and Brazilian pork. There is that big hole, though, true, in terms of pork supplies in China. I mean, they, they need it. They're getting it uh, from other countries, but they still have a huge need. This situation is now finally beginning to show itself. China is opening their doors to any type of protein that is available. They're in the process of... Uh, uh, reducing the ban on U.S. poultry. Uh, that that has been in place since uh, 2015. They're, they're opening doors to Brazilian pork, uh, Brazilian beef. Uh, they've just resumed shipments from Canada, importing Canadian pork and canola. Uh, any type of protein and Chinese are buying. Uh, beef is going from New Zealand to, to China in, in quantities never experienced. Australia is shipping more beef to China. Brazil shipping more beef to China. So they are looking for protein, and they are buyers. The thought was that maybe the that need that they had for pork would help bring about the end of the trade war, or at least uh, help move us along a little more quickly. Do you think it still could happen? Yeah, it, it will happen and in some phase or in some form. Uh, they do uh, desperately need uh, U.S. pork to help them out of the current situation that they're in. And uh, exactly how it transpires and when that tariff is reduced it is obviously a political football, but it will happen, and maybe it'll happen sooner rather than later. Meanwhile, our producers have been producing too much, right? I mean, the pork is exceeding the demand. Yeah, it's a, that's another uh, point of frustration is the U.S. Uh, industry continues to expand, and it's probably in its uh, fourth, approaching the fifth year now of expansion and record large production going on for probably now about the fourth year consecutively. Uh, we are overproducing and we have excessive supplies right now and exports is the only answer uh, that we can get up out of this. So someone might ask, are producers able to make money? If they're continuing to expand, one would think that there's some incentive there for them. Are they making money at these price levels, Dennis? Well, Max, that does a, that is not clear. It, there's a economic theory would say that you should not be 
expanding because we just don't think the profits have been there, but yet the expansion continues. So it's a little bit confusing right now exactly why expansion is continuing because, quite frankly, the the profit levels just have not been there over the last couple of years. How about the meat packers? They're doing okay, aren't they? The profit is there for them, is it not? Life is good for a packer right now. It's not always been that way, but the packers, we believe, uh, are making uh, high profit margins. And in fact, these are estimates, Max. We also believe that the margins are probably much better than, than what we realize. We don't know the price of the meat when it's sold to China, shipped to China. And I've heard some pretty fantastic price levels. Just to shift gears a little bit, I was with the Angus folks at their convention in Reno last weekend. Pretty upbeat bunch, but, uh, you know, you hear a lot of talk about cow-calf folks struggling right now in the beef sector. Is that still a trouble spot? That is still a trouble spot, and and the the average age it continues to get uh, older and older, and you might see so, some people leaving that business. Cow slaughter's taken a jump here recently, uh, and that's a, a possible concern. Uh, some drought in the southeast, also a concern for cow liquidation, but uh, beef demand domestically has been outstanding, and that has really helped the beef market stage an impressive recovery. About a two-month rally has occurred from the lows in early September. Well, talk about this November situation. We get into the early days of November every year, and we start to see the featuring of turkey, of course. Some years you drive by the grocery store, they darn near throw one in the back seat for you. What's the situation this year? They, they use them as a loss leader many years, right? Yeah, and I think that's probably will be the case again this year. As they are aggressively featured, uh, beef will move toward the back as well as a lot of pork items, with the exception maybe of hams. But... This has been such an unusual year, Max. I'm not sure that predicting the normal is ever going to, to be the right thing to do. So we'll see how it all works out. But uh, overall, uh, demand has been good for the meat products with unemployment as low as it is. Uh, I don't think demand's ever been better for beef. And, and, I, and I think beef uh, or pork demand has also been very well domestically. The comment was made at the Angus Convention last week that the per capita consumption of the red meats and poultry in 2020 will probably be the best it's been in 20 years. Is that accurate? That is an accurate statement, but the per capita consumption is also a supply stat. In other words, you're you're looking at total production, imports, you add in imports, and then you take away exports, and what's left is is then divided by the population, and that's your per capita consumption. Simply because that meat is here and it will be consumed, uh, it basically demonstrates we are at record large production in beef, pork, and poultry. Always good to talk to you. Thank you. We appreciate your visits, Dennis. Have a nice Thanksgiving season. Thank you, Max. Dennis Smith with Archer Financial Services. This unusual crop year continues to become even more unusual. This week, grain merchant ADM Archer Daniels Midland said it's waiving the fees it charges farmers to dry grain at three of its Midwestern corn processors. It's seeking supplies to keep the plants running at optimum levels through a very slow wet harvest period. Farmers who are weeks behind schedule in much of the U.S. Corn Belt because of the rainy harvest conditions have been reluctant to sell their grain at current price levels, but free drying will offer them a significant break 
as tight supplies of propane needed to run the grain dryers have sent costs of propane soaring this fall. ADM's chief financial officer said this week the company expected wet crops would lead to uh, increased uh, revenues from its drying operations, but a spokeswoman said in an email statement that ADM on Wednesday started offering free drying of corn at 19% moisture rate or less that farmers brought to its wet corn mills in Decatur, Illinois, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and Clinton, Iowa. Those plants process corn into ethanol and produce ingredients that are used by food and beverage companies. But corn, of course, as we know, has to be dried to a certain moisture level to be sold, stored safely, or processed. So corn delivered to ADM will apparently not uh, have to pay for the drying fees. Speaking of corn, that uh, USDA report that was issued yesterday shows corn production down 1% from the previous forecast and down 5% from last year. And the per acre yield of corn was lowered in that report. It's expected to average 167 bushels per acre now, and that number would be down 1.4 bushels from the previous forecast, and it would be down about 9.4 bushels from 2018. Finally, uh, as we approach Veterans Day, little impact on market trading Monday because of Veterans Day, but then we're approaching Thanksgiving Day, and I like this kind of an announcement. It came to me from Blaine's Farm and Fleet, one of our good sponsors, and the announcement was they will close on Thanksgiving Day to allow associates and customers to spend the holiday with family and friends before reopening at 6 a.m. on Black Friday, November 29th. So families of the ADM staff uh, will be able to enjoy Thanksgiving Day without having to be open. Well, our thanks to you for joining us. Our thanks to Bob Ferguson for doing the engineering work. And again, I'm Orion. We look forward to your company a week from now here on WGN. Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720.